listeners, one and all, welcome to Regency Rumours, the podcast where a British-American couple discuss Bridgerton, the Netflix Regency show. I'm Jordan. And I'm Kayla. And I will be honest with you, I've got no idea who I'm married to. Why? Over lockdown, I learned so much about you. Mm-hmm. Namely, all the things that you don't know, which quite frankly has been hurting my soul a little bit. Who is that? Who's Richard Gere? And I just, I don't, I don't know what to say to him. Like, I don't even know, how do you not know who Richard Gere is? It's just shock and disbelief, mostly. Then a few days ago, he turned to me and he says, what is ranch? He, he's married to a Southern woman and he has the gall to ask me what ranch is. I think it was like the same way I felt when he said, what is Garth Brooks? I, anyways, we've been together five years now, married to, and somehow he doesn't know what ranch is. And I've got a long list of things, but I, I won't name them all. But ranch, I think, is the one that has hurt my heart the most. Okay, so let me just let me just jump in here. Ranch is something that I don't have regularly, obviously, as we don't live in the USA. So when I say, oh, hey, what's ranch? I've had ranch before. Let's just clear that up straight away. I'm not literally asking what ranch is. I'm more wondering what's in it. Like... It's been a, w- a long while since I've had it. My memories of it are vague. And honestly, I think it's I... mostly Caesar dressing, but without the mustard and the garlic. No. No. It's basically mayonnaise, right? Oh, my gosh. No. I haven't I mean, had is. ranch in forever, and I will never forget the taste of what it feels like for ranch to go down my throat. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like two milliseconds into her saying it, the look on her face... <laughs> She knew what she was about to say, and she did it anyway. I didn't mean it like that. I just mean like... It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you meant. It's recorded. The whole internet's going to hear it. I just mean that ranch is one of those things you'll never... It's like sweet tea. I mean, how can you forget what sweet tea tastes like? And so I just feel like ranch was something I exposed you to. And the fact that you're sitting here and saying, like, I don't remember what it tastes like and what is it. I just... I don't know. I don't know who I'm married to. I don't know who I make tea for in the mornings, so. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I wish that you made me tea in the mornings. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And and so, yeah, Richard Gere. Gere, Oh, please. Please don't. Um, I admit that I hadn't seen a single, literally a single film that he had been in until very, very recently. But you've never read Harry Potter, and that's one of the best-selling series of all time. So I don't think Richard Gere, Gary, Gare compares to that, really. I mean, I honestly don't. Okay, me not reading Harry Potter was by choice. And I'll admit now that I'm an adult, like maybe I'll give it a go. But I don't want to speak to you anymore about your disrespect of Richard Gere. He's a fine 90s actor. Oh. So, you know. So this morning... I get up and I'm wanting to like replicate Bowberry biscuits, uh, from Bo from Bojangles, because- <laughs> Bojangles, <laughs> Bojangles, because I haven't been back to the U.S. in a long time. We're in lockdown, and I am missing some like home comfort foods. So I'm trying to make these biscuits, which end up turning out more like muffins. I'll be honest, but never mind. And I ask him, "Would you like a muffin?" And he answers, "For breakfast." Well, yeah. Much like Daphne in episode seven, which we're recapping today, I don't know 
who on earth I'm married to? When else do you have a muffin for dinner? Like, what what has this country done to you? What kind of people are you that you assume that you eat a muffin at any other point of the day than at breakfast? Look, cakes are for dessert. I've said this before, and I will say it again. When I have something that sweet for breakfast, I feel like a child who's indulging in something that he shouldn't. And it's not my fault that American breakfasts always hopped up on sugar. Like, just because you lot love your diabetes so much doesn't mean that the rest of the world does. Although, no, I mean, that was a joke. I apologize. Um, However, the, the Europeans are just as, like, sugar happy as you lot for breakfast too like when when we went to portugal and the hotel for breakfast it was basically here's some pastries and muffins oh by the way so what is your problem i don't have much of a problem except literally that your food is bland that you've grown up on bland food that's what's wrong with all of y'all No, because it's weird like I'm, i'm saying that i don't like sugary things for breakfast but at the same time like i'll have cereal and then i'll put sugar on it if it doesn't already have sugar in it um it's just the idea of having something for breakfast that potentially has icing on it or like like frosting or something mm. just it sends a signal to my brain that this is a cake and I shouldn't be having it for breakfast that is so sad and I'm sorry that you live your life that way this is why never mind let's not go into the whole Who's got the better healthcare system right now? <laughs> the problem is that you people are eating those crumpet things for breakfast hey. instead. Hey, hey, hey. And that is what is wrong with this country. Oh. There are so many things I love about the UK, but I draw the line with holy bread. Oh, wow. So, so now you're throwing crumpets under the bus too. I mean, that's just rude. There's nothing wrong with crumpets or English muffins, which are the only muffins that are actually designed for breakfast. And, right, the most American company of all time even gets the whole muffin for breakfast thing correct. McDonald's, you go in, you ask for a McMuffin. Do they give you a cake? No, they give you an English muffin with stuff in it. Like, duh. So, um, we've had this argument as a married couple um, for quite a long time, and I still haven't rectified this. Um, And all of my um, British friends are also horrified at this fact. Kayla, for some strange reason, thinks that crumpets and English muffins, breakfast muffins, are the same thing. They're basically the same. No. They're, they're like these squishy bread. It's squishy holy bread, and they taste pretty much the same. And if you handed me one or handed me the other, I'd be like, look, I can taste a small difference. But if if one of these were already like going off and tasted a bit funny, it would just taste like the other one. So, so listen, right. One is very clearly a bread but one is much more like individual and like she says it's it's kind of springy almost the crumpet and it just has a different flavor it has a different texture you do like you wouldn't really put like salmon on a crumpet but you can on a muffin because like if you toast it it goes toast like instead of warm which is what a crumpet does you don't toast crumpets they're already cooked you just warm them through and we're on episode seven of Bridgerton. We're almost done and we can't believe it. No. And why do I keep thinking that there are, there are 10 episodes? It's like, there's only one episode after this. Yeah, I know. I'm kind of sad. It's so weird because it's kind of in the British sense of the tradition of having like eight or so, six to eight episodes in things. And, and, but I don't know. For some reason, I just thought, I thought there was 10. I mean, 
it would actually make more sense if there were 13, because Netflix does quite a few 13-episode things. But yeah, eight. We're a penultimate episode. Yeah, I mean, we're gonna. I think we're going to try and splice eight into two episodes like we did midway through. We sliced episode five into two, so I think we're going to do the same. Yeah, but let's be honest with people, that wasn't on purpose. It wasn't on purpose, but there was just so much to talk about, which was great. Out of those episodes, this is the one that's more likely to be a two-parter. We'll get to the end of this and decide that. But we've we've really loved uh, recapping Bridgerton. It's been a fun adventure, and we can't believe that people have interacted with our rambling about the show, but we're really delighted that you've decided to listen along. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, we'd love you to leave a review of the podcast. It'd mean a ton to us, and it's just awesome to know if you're enjoying what you're listening to. Also, we've decided that we're going to have an upload schedule of Mondays, so look at me in the eye. Mm-hmm. Look at me. Mm-hmm. We're going to be uploading every week on Mondays. I know that we've been a bit sporadic. Um, because this podcast obviously is not our full-time job, it's one of those things where I'm doing a PhD, Jordan has started a new job, we're in the middle of a move, um, and just everything pandemic-wise we're kind of overloaded with life, but we're really enjoying this podcast and want want to be able to keep it up. And we know that that people being able to um, look forward to a regular schedule is really important. So we're going to try and have an upload schedule of every Monday. If for some reason we have some sort of emergency, um, we can't get it up, which we're going to try our best to get those episodes up every week on Monday. We will let you know on our Facebook group and on our Podbean account, but just uh, be ready for those new episodes every Monday. And if you'd like to share memes, videos, or strike up a conversation about Bridgerton or other Regency shows, join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash Regency Rumors with a U. Daphne is regretting her choice in the episode, I feel, and I get her. I agree, and I am too. You love me. You are on my nerves. You should start the recap. You can kiss my... This is episode 7 of Bridgerton, Oceans Apart. We open to Daphne banging on the piano. The honeymoon phase, and the literal honeymoon, is over. The Duke is outside shooting. So she opens the door, and... um, I don't know why she. <laughs> I don't know why it bothers him so much, honestly. But never mind. She opens the door so that he can hear her slamming on the keys even more, and the two get into a fighting match over who can sound the loudest. And neither is the winner there. At dinner, they're no longer sitting side by side, but completely across from each other at the table. I mean, why even be eating in the same room? It seems a bit dumb. Also, we paused this scene during the recap, and there are three trays full of grapes. Why do you need three full trays of grapes? I put a picture up. I screenshotted it. You can't really see it. They Netflix does a good job of like making the screen look black if you um, screenshot it. But I screenshotted it and put it in our uh, Facebook group. And there are literal trays, like three full trays of grapes at dinner. And I'm pretty sure that's just something they kind of whip together on set. But it's really funny. I'm like for the two of them there's no way that they'd like request oh yes our entire meal and three trays of grapes no so daphne asks that all of her stuff be uh, removed from simon's room the honeymoon is well and truly over 
The two are being extremely petty and are only speaking through the servants. Simon says that he wants to know if she is successful in being pregnant at dinner in front of the servants. Lady Whistledown's new paper arrives and Daphne finds out that Colin has been embroiled in a scandal. She must get home straight away. She doesn't want Simon to come along, but much to her dismay, he insists that they will not break households, at least until he finds out if she's pregnant. So, I am curious as to whether dinners would have really happened this way. Were people so forthcoming with their personal matters in front of an entire room of servants? These people do know servants can talk, right? Like, they're all frustrated that the news keeps getting out about them and that Lady Whistledown keeps getting into everybody's private business. And they go on about their sex lives in front of their servants. Like, what, what do they expect? It just seems crazy to me. And... I could get talking about some of the logistical things, but like getting into arguments about whether you're pregnant or not in front of a bunch of people who are serving you food just seems so weird. Like they could just serve the food and then be dismissed like a like a waiter today. You know, they come back to your table and occasionally check on you. But I don't know how these things work, but it seems a bit silly to me that they are just laying bare all of their juicy secrets for their servants to hear. I yeah. I do wonder how yeah. accurate that is. I mean, I don't know how historically correct that is, um, but we do see it in a lot of shows and, and films. Yeah. Like, it's really popular. Um, and I guess that they they would maybe always want somebody there ready to grab a plate from halfway down the table that they can't reach because they're sat at a 30-foot table. Um so I don't know. And then in, in some ways, there must have been a real sense of like servants are just part of the furniture um, for some of these nobles. Yeah. Um, If they're so used to them always being there, you know, like it's maybe it's a sign of good breeding to ignore your servants. Um, I mean, I think it is a bit crazy. Um, You're inviting the whole household to be low on morale with their lord and lady fighting. Um, I don't know what they're doing. It just doesn't make sense. And And for characters who have kind of been intelligent i mean they've been a bit like dumb with each other but in general they're intelligent characters I, I don't know it's it seems like it's just something that the writers forgot about yeah may- maybe it's like and i don't i don't mean necessarily just the writers of bridgerton i mean writers in general tend yeah. to just forget what do we do with the servants um it doesn't seem very common that i mean there have been a few things that we've seen where the servants will kind of give each other a side eye or a, like briefly look at each other or whatever as if they don't know what to do but i i believe that the servants are around for dinner when when they've got like huge amounts of people over oh, and yeah. they've got dinner parties and stuff and that makes sense but i think in terms of like just when it's just the the couple themselves together you know i I feel like it's got to be a bit much to have all those servants there. Like, if I think of other Regency kind of era stuff, Gentleman Jack or even um, Sense and Sensibility, I'm just trying to think of, like, people eating um, in these settings. Normally, you know, they'll they'll show them eating at breakfast or, you know, even dinner, and it'll be around a small table. But then if they have, like, a party or something, they'll have more people there. So I don't know. That's a good point. However... I have also just thought that in this, in Bridgerton, the um, the Bridgertons themselves, when they're having breakfast, they've got no servants. Yeah. You don't see any servants. Um, 
but in this case obviously it's the duke and so we're trying to or they're trying to show that the duke is is much more he's got a larger household he's got a staff he's got money yeah um and don't forget that the um i always forget what her title is but the the lady of the house (laughs) the housekeeper the housekeeper there we go thank you um the housekeeper no, wait, it was one of the footmen, sorry, in the in the previous episode said said that the previous Duke always preferred a formal table. Okay. And obviously a formal table is like you were saying, when you've got guests around, you've got a bunch of footmen. Yeah. And, yeah. So it could just be left over from the previous Duke. That, could be. Yeah. It's just a it's just a funny detail that we're like, okay, that's a bit weird. And then all these people are running around like, Oh my gosh, the gossip has gotten out about me and my family and I'm like, Well, you know, we at this point we don't know who Lady Whistledown is. But the, you know, the the common, like, consensus is that she's getting her information somewhere. And it's not just that she's at every single one of these events. It's got to be in some ways, some of her in- information has got to come from servants talking, yada yada. So I mean, that makes sense. But, like, nobody ever actually broaches that possibility. I mean, um, Eloise at one point said it could be a servant mm-hmm. and then was laughed in her face. But like, never do we find the possibility that there is a circle of informants amongst yeah. the servants. Like, the servants were used in an earlier episode to um, find information when the characters were like specifically asking for it. But we never actually know if that's something that happens. Yeah, anyway, let's, let's carry on. So, Lady Whistledown is back, and the news is spreading like wildfire. Colin is sulking in his bedroom, whilst Violet and Eloise are out shopping, having to endure the stares of so many people. Lady Featherington is trying her best to find Marina a place to go, but that is unfortunately going to require money, of which they have none. Daphne has arrived at the Bridgerton house, where poor, lovesick Colin wishes to go see Marina. The siblings and their mother try to decide on a course of action so that the heat can be kept off of them, and Violet and Daphne decide that they will simply just act as if nothing has happened and try and shift the attention onto the Duke and Daphne being in London. Back at the Hastings house in London, the Duke and Daphne try to rekindle things, so to speak, but it doesn't work out. Simon says he will take care of Daphne and be a husband for her if she is pregnant, But if she is not, then they will live completely different lives. So these two clearly are starting to to form some toxic habits. This all or nothing thing is super damaging in relationships and it never works. Plus, it, it doesn't make sense. He's got every right to be hurt. Absolutely. But saying he'll be a husband if she's pregnant, but essentially leave her if she's not... It's clear that that's not what either of them want. We can tell that Daphne is becoming more and more aware that she's married someone she doesn't really know, and now she's having to put all the puzzle pieces together and make something of this relationship. For the Duke's part, he's just running, like always. I don't know how they expect to have a good marriage with the both of them acting like children. They've only been married for a hot minute. As for the scandal part of it, I'm not getting into the whole royal family issue. No, thank you. But what I will say is this. It's got to be like this for these prominent families. They're all sitting around like, do we talk? Do we say nothing? Like, if we do say something, how much do we say and what do we say? And 
then if they're not going to talk, they've got to figure out some sort of diversion away from the issue within the family. So these sorts of upper class families that are flitting around high society, but are also kind of business owners or they have land, they run trusts. Um, I, I think it must be incredibly hard to be a family and to also balance the the need to exist as like a brand or a company almost. It's just a weird thing to have to coexist as a family and as a collective, collective branded group when everyone has such personal lives and are flawed and everyone's got occasional weird family members that you just can't tame. So in the case of the Bridgertons, they're one of London's most liked families. Now, with Daphne marrying Simon, they're more prominent than ever at this point, and they've got to just put on a collective front that everything's fine. Otherwise, the situation gets worse. I think it is interesting that the majority of society don't live like this and basically have to negotiate their stories or behaviors with one another as a family before going back into the world. And yet these types of people clearly have to do it all the time. As we can see in their situation, it doesn't make for a family bond. It's not natural. It's, it's kind of strange. So it really complicates things and has to be frustrating as a family. Yeah, definitely. Um, so just to go back to the first thing, like there are some toxic habits clearly forming here. And it's the whole, I'm not going to explain myself because she should just know what to do and vice versa. And it can take some getting used to, you know, marriage and communicating with someone effectively, but these two are not off to a good start, bless. Um, there are some good things that go along with being nobodies, right? No one cares what your family's doing, and if they do, it's going to be your neighbours or your extended family of, what, 50 people at most? Yeah. I think the whole putting on a front thing is something that has slowly changed with their new companies and you know you made this inference that the uh royal family and other prominent um nobles are going to be like companies and i think doesn't doesn't the royal family refer to themselves as the company or something like that the firm the firm the firm, the firm. right so um in regards to that then s slowly slowly new companies are kind of changing that um, in the modern era. So, if you think about BrewDog, have you heard anything about BrewDog lately? No? no. Well, I mean, it's been all over LinkedIn and other kind of professional spaces. Um, the the brewing company out of Scotland, um, they've been really in the news lately, and they're being they're getting out there by being different. So, typically, nobody would care what a brewing company does or thinks or says. Okay, but. In this particular instance, they have been um, very vocal about some of their uh, beliefs and kind of like their ways of doing business as like as a company, right? And um, throughout lockdown, they obviously weren't using their uh, breweries, so they offered them to the governments to do um, uh, store the COVID um, tests and vaccines and stuff. Vaccines in particular, I think, because they've already got all of the refrigerators and stuff. Um, but not only that, they've done some like fun things with Aldi, um, where um, a knockoff Brewdog beer was produced by Aldi, and Brewdog retaliated by creating a knockoff Aldi beer, um, and called it the um, Old IPA. So when you look, and it's kind of in the same font as Aldi's logo. So when you look at it, it's, it looks like 
Aldi IPA. Does that make sense? I guess so, yeah. So anyway, I mean, it's really refreshing to see companies. And this, these are not the only people to do it. And they're not the only company. And they're just the kind of the most prominent one because I saw it today. Um, but, you know, they're being different. They're doing something that is um, not as shut in as before and a lot of these kind of older companies sometimes when they do stuff it's kind of it comes across as a bit dishonest to me because of like they pretend that everything is fine if things aren't or whatever or they might you know companies in the past have covered up what kind of labor conditions they've used and that kind of thing right so it's refreshing to see companies care about that kind of a thing and um saying this is how we are we're going to be open about it and i can respect that quite a lot and so when when we're kind of talking about the bridgertons doing something like this it makes a lot of sense because that's kind of like the way things are done in inverted commas um they're not you gonna say something i was just gonna say it is very much like keep calm and carry on type yes, thing 100%. and and it does kind of like we've been hearing that a lot in the news about the royal family the whole like say like what is it that slogan of never explain never complain i don't know yeah i think that's the slogan and and that's what it seems like the bridgertons are kind of living by don't explain what has happened and don't act like anything's happened and just keep going yeah and we can see that for them it's it's something that they're having to actually talk out and negotiate as a family like how do we do this mm-hmm. and so because like in a sense they're trying not to lie because yeah. because if if they talk about it they'd have to lie about it because they want to save their reputation so instead of lying they're just choosing not to talk about it yeah um so you know it's like it causes a little bit of an issue but in a in a in this case i can kind of respect that type of um family preservation yeah yeah exactly because you know if if they were to be like open about everything that happened then everything about their family and their situation in society would like dissolve and nobody would ever do that yeah yeah so it's hard i just think it's got to be hard for these families that are out there in the public and especially um in in you know a situation like this so yeah not that we're saying we're not saying one thing or the other about the royal family themselves i was just using that as an example of you know how families have to be have to talk behind closed doors like this whereas a normal family you know that doesn't have the notoriety (laughs) nor well nobody's normal but a an everyday family that that doesn't have to talk in front of the press, um, they don't have to go through these challenges. You don't have to be in a locked room together as a family and go, "What are we going to say? How are we going to act at an event? You, you you know, what are we going to do?" You don't need to think about the PR, right. right? And and that's what I was saying earlier. Like maybe maybe fifty people, yeah, max, are going to care about like what you know you as a family do or your kids' school or something. But I mean, that's not. Everybody and their mother at the Daily Mail, you know, like... No, but, I mean, even then, like, really, if if, if you're involved in the scandal and your kids' friends are... Like, it's not going to be that many people. Yeah. In in a class of, like, 30 kids. Eh. Yeah. 100 at most. I get what you mean. You know? Yeah. So... It's not the world, basically. It's yeah, not the world. Yeah, it's not the whole world, Um, is what we're trying to say. 
So Daphne provides a way for Marina and Colin to speak. He clearly needs closure, although Marina acts like she's annoyed that she's having to do it at all. As soon as Colin speaks to her, we realise that he's in denial, and he says, What Lady Whistledown has written, surely it cannot be true. Poor Colin. Marina holds her ground, though, and she says that she will not be shamed, and she doesn't sugarcoat things now. She says that she holds Colin in high esteem, and she did what she thought that she must. She says that no one really helped her or guided her in a different way, so she took the opportunity, and she tells him that he was the only man to offer her a glimpse of happiness. And he tells her that had she been honest with him in the first place, he would have married her without a second thought. This is how in love I believed myself to be, he said. This is sad. I feel like no one wins here. You feel for Marina because she's kind of been pushed in this direction by Lady Featherington. And you feel bad for Colin because his entire relationship has really just been a lie. Yeah. I will say it. it's good on her that she told the truth. She didn't lie. And she didn't tell him that she loved him. She didn't try and like smooth anything over and beg for forgiveness in a way that would have like begged him back or trapped him again or anything. She just simply said her side of the story and told him how she felt trapped in her own situation. I think this was the best way she could have done this for him was to be blunt and honest. He had every right to be mad. But I think it is silly of him to assume that she could have trusted him with this information that she was already pregnant. That would have been like the worst of the worst at the time. There would have been no way she could have trusted him to just up and marry her in that situation. No, she shouldn't have lied, but him acting as if she should have just known he would have taken that information with a grain of salt and married her anyway is crazy to me. Any woman in this era would have been worried about telling a man this kind of information, much less expecting him to go along with it. I think that's just proof how he doesn't know what it's like to step in a woman's shoes in a situation like this. She had no guarantees he would have behaved well or would have continued their courtship. And for him to be mad and act like she should have just known he would have married her shows he's kind of naive in my books. Yeah, yeah, he's no clue what it's like to be a woman in this society and to be fair i think no man ever understands what it's really like being a woman in any society but there we are um he is unfortunately a bit naive and marina is the representative of the real world in this story you know quote unquote um and she's here to burst colin's bubble and you know i think um just as you were saying that um one thing that i kind of want to very briefly touch on is we keep kind of talking about the characters and their actions as if like they're people and that they've made the decisions themselves. And sometimes it is useful to remind ourselves that they were written in this particular way too. Yeah. And so having having the kind of... I, I, I haven't looked to see specifically who wrote this episode or anything like that. Um, so I don't want to kind of make any judgments. But when a writer kind of does this kind of a thing where a man... Um, is in this situation and does something that is so blind to the realities of of being a woman it makes you go well a man wrote that scene because he doesn't get it and has ignored all of the recent things that has told him that that would not be a good idea um i don't think that's necessarily true i think they could have been very aware you know colin is is one of the younger boys and we're not 100% sure how old he is, I don't think, but he's young. Didn't somebody in the group say that he was supposed to be uh, 21 in the books? Okay, well then young. There you go. 
He's young. He's a bit naive of the world. His brothers have clearly gone on and gotten out there. He's really not. And he's just like fallen in love with the first girl he's laid eyes on kind of. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I do think that that's, to me, it's just kind of a bit of well-rounded writing. I think that's the way, because he seems like such a, a nice and pure-hearted kind of guy, it seems natural to me that he would just respond, well, of course I would have married you. Oh, yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I do totally agree. Um, But we do have to, you know, I, well, we don't have to. <laughs> I guess that's the point. Sometimes, though, if you look at it from the fact that this is a manufactured, created story, you can look at the kind of the motivations of the characters in a slightly different light. And instead of thinking of it purely as, oh, well, he's trusting and, and is a good, kind man, then that's why he thinks that. And then you go, well, let's kind of think about why the writer wrote that in the first place. And and so, again, we don't have to go too much on, on, on that, but it is an interesting thing and is something that kind of just popped into my head as we were talking about it. Yeah. So sorry for yeah. the, the segue there. So we're now at the Queen's Garden Party. Full of string quartets, fresh flowers, mountains of food, and now tons of lively people. Simon is pretending like nothing is wrong when people ask him how his marriage is. Whilst Daphne is having a hard time seeing just how easy it is for him to lie through his teeth. Well, I don't like that either, so. Lady Danbury invites Daphne to a soiree in her honor. A party to invite her into the married ladies club, apparently. The Featheringtons show up at the garden party. Cringe. Even the queen looks surprised that they would show up. Lady Featherington pulls Violet aside and acts as if she had nothing to do with Colin being duped by that scheming hussy. Lady Violet simply just walks away, and Lady Featherington is asked to leave the party. Everyone is watching her speak. We are shielding our eyes. Ooh. Daphne runs off into the garden, this time not to be caught by a hot guy, but by her mother. Those fun days are over. Daphne is having a hard time with the fact that her mother never explained to her some of the realities of marriage, but instead sugarcoated a lot of it. She clearly isn't coping well in marriage at the minute, and the person who she trusted most to guide her into marriage has sugarcoated what it's really like. Just briefly before we go into some of that discussion there, do we know who tells the Featheringtons to leave? Um, it's it's a servant, yeah. Oh, okay. It's a servant yeah. of the Queen's. Right, exactly. And he I basically th- says, like, the Queen doesn't even want you here, so. Yeah, it, it, isn't that, that guy uh, kind of like the footman of the Queen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember now. So I want to talk a little bit about the history of garden parties. They were quite a popular type of event during the London season in the Regency period. This particular garden party was put on by the Queen, so I'm not sure the location of this and where it was supposed to be, but one of the more popular gardens for events was called Vauxhall Gardens, which is where Daphne and the Duke made their arrangement and I think got caught and where one of the earlier episodes had a ball or two. So I'd kind of heard of these, but I'll be honest with you, I thought this was not a real place. I didn't think Vauxhall Gardens was real, but it is. It, it was real. And um, fun fact, Vauxhall is the name of a car brand in the UK. Yeah. Is that is that a British car or is it a... I think so. Okay. Um, I think in Europe and abroad, they're called Opal. Okay. Um, And the logo is different elsewhere. But here it's basically just Vauxhall with like a... It's like a... a 
stylized griffin. Anyway. Okay. So Vauxhall Gardens today is a part of London and it's in the inner city. However, back in the day, it was more of a rural location and it was this massive pleasure garden from 1785 to 1859 with loads of trees and plants and walkways lamps and paintings and sculptures if you google it 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 looks absolutely massive it looks like a huge maze so no wonder couples got uh easily lost in there it was huge oh we got lost it was an accident oh no we didn't we <laughs> couldn't find our way back oh so one thing that i thought was cool that you could originally access the gardens only by boat which makes it all the more kind of feel exclusive to me um, until 1810 when a bridge was built. So there's still a bridge there today, although it was built in 1906 to replace the bridge that was originally there. It was first named Regent Bridge, which is quite fitting, uh, but today it is just Vauxhall Bridge. So several Regency writers uh, have set scenes in Vauxhall Gardens, most notably William Makepeace Thackeray's Vanity Fair, which was published in 1848, but obviously set in an earlier time. It did seem like this was an area for everyone, though, so people from different parts of society could come to Vauxhall Gardens, from the working class to high society. That also meant that unseemly things could happen there, such as sex work and pickpocketing. So some accounts said there could be upwards of 16,000 people there at a time, which is like the size of a concert. That's a lot of people. Um, from all the pictures I've looked at online, it looks like a massive place with like huge two towered rotundas where people could sit and watch um, people watch and enjoy like a light snack. So it seemed like there was several of these kind of like rotundas and not like temporary buildings, but just just like these like walkways where if it was raining, they you could like be on the second level of like a long walkway and Which, be able to look out into the gardens and stuff. Um, honestly, that that's that's a pretty standard thing for Victorian gardens. Yeah. Um the kind of the wooden um buildings type things, right? Yeah, I mean, they from the paintings I've looked at, some of these look like they were brick and they were quite oh, okay. they weren't they weren't temporary, like they looked like huge buildings mm. that were built. Um but nothing's left of it now which is really sad it looked like there um was like big music rooms and ponds and stuff it definitely seemed like it would be like a really cool sight to see um i'd love to walk around somewhere like there or, or like even if they just did like a digital side of it like i know when google earth first came out they made like an entire like rome like ancient rome and so that would be really cool if they kind of made a digital a digital walk around of Vauxhall Gardens, but sadly there's just, there's nothing left. Um, so for these nighttime events, it said that they used upwards of 20,000 lamps, which sounds like such a fire hazard to me. Like that's, that sounds so insane. It also apparently gave off an awful odor from the whale oil. And so I'm not sure I would have enjoyed that at night. Um, in the microcosm of London, from 1808 to 1810, it was thought that there were rather more lamps than that. Vauxhall is a very fascinating place of amusement, but its principal feature is the illumination. 
37,000 lamps of various colours, sometimes lighted in these gardens, in the most tasteful forms and brilliant devices, with their associated transparencies, produce a splendour of decoration unrivalled in any place of amusement in Europe. It is a curious circumstance, and proves the extraordinary change in our manners and habits, that in a description of these gardens in 1760, the illumination at that time, proceeding only from 1,500 comparatively dim lamps of the same kind, but of a smaller size, as those which now light our streets, is mentioned in as glowing terms as would suit the present extraordinary and accumulated brilliance of the gardens. I feel like that was something that probably could have been said in two sentences, but it was beautiful to watch you read it. Hey, I, d I didn't make it up. That's a quote. Oh, I know. I know. I picked it out. But I, I just think it's so funny. I think something like this is so fun to like read but you're like trying to pick out what they're actually saying and it's just basically like the lights were real bright and well <laughs> basically <laughs> basically he's going oh well you know in the past they had these really dim lights and they they talked about them really well but our lights are much better now <laughs> in a paragraph and so flowery language it's, yeah it's fun. it's fun though it's fun but that's crazy to me, all these lights and everything, that nothing like burned up and went in flames and everybody was running out of the garden. Have you heard of the Great Fire of London? <laughs> <laughs> oh. To be fair, that was 200 years earlier. Yeah. So, um, But you, you could also go to Vauxhall Gardens to see musical events, acrobats, mechanical attractions, fireworks, masquerades, balloon ascensions, is that where a balloon kind of finds enlightenment and, and, and you know, ascends to the heavens? I was making a, a very bad joke. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's where probably... Uh, I, I actually don't know. I know it's in, like, the 1800s at some point when people were getting into hot air balloons, but that was probably the craziest thing. Yeah, like, like um, if you're watching people go up in air, yeah. air balloons and be like, well, goodbye. Yeah, but... Um, Never see you again. Time to die. <laughs> Uh, who wrote it? Um, is it Jules Verne? Eight, around, the world, around the World in 80 Days? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Verne did 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, I believe. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, who cares? So, <laughs> But I, like, I do think that out of everything, you know, Bridgerton, there's a lot in Bridgerton that is not accurate. Obviously, we've talked about that a lot on the podcast. But I... I think now kind of having looked up what Vauxhall Gardens was like, if there's anything that kind of is in the spirit of trying to be accurate about the extravagance, oh, Bridgerton yeah. has exceeded in that f for something like this. Because I, like I said, I'd heard of Vauxhall Gardens and I'd heard about these sorts of garden parties, but I have never seen a Regency era show or movie that has shown you like the level of splendor that it could be. Now, yeah, the, the colors are crazy in Bridgerton and, you know, the extravagance does seem up there. But when you hear these accounts and when you see some of the pictures of what these gardens would have been like, the extravagance was there. We just, we don't have anything physical that we can see from it today. So the fact that Bridgerton was trying to capture this kind of atmosphere, which must have been so elaborate and beautiful to see. And we just have no idea of how spectacular seeing something like these events were. But I feel like Bridgerton really can give us an idea of what a place like Vauxhall would have been like 
in a way that other period dramas haven't even probably even had the budget to do before. I was going to say money. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So um, in that way, thank you, Bridgerton, because it really makes you feel like that fantasy fairy tale type thing that they're trying to create in these gardens with all these lights and music and masquerades and stuff um, that that can really come to life on something like Bridgerton and we can feel a part of it. So I think in that yeah. way, that's really cool. Um, and just to know, I found this on regencyhistory.net, which seems to be a, a cool resource of a, a Regency writer with a lot of notes and sources uh, for you to find out more. So I will include that article in the show notes. And not much more for me to add here. Uh, I agree that finding out how these events really happened is kind of mostly fiction now anyway, right? Like, we can read accounts of them, sure, but it's not like there was a drone pilot conveniently around to record the thing for us to see, right? Um, but very interesting, though. Thank you, my love. You're welcome. So, in terms of Daphne and the scene with her mom, I will say we've never seen anything like this in a period drama. I think this is really powerful. I do think there were a lot of women who were probably not as informed as they should have been about marriage. Not just sex, but like marriage as a whole. And how complicated it can be in a time when you're just so stuck in a marriage. I don't know that we're ever going to know how much women knew um, this stuff before getting married or how much information they shared with each other about it. But it had to be daunting to step into a marriage knowing so little in Daphne's case. I think there's just a lot of kind of duty involved. So you just get on with it type thing, right? Like, I think we see here how Violet can tell that she's upset her daughter and how she's should have prepared Daphne a bit more. Because clearly marriage is not all rainbows and butterflies. And Daphne's now having to, to deal with that reality. On the flip side, I'm sure Violet's mind... In Violet's mind, that's just how it was done. It was how it happened with her mother and probably her mother before that. And so she's just like, I don't need to prepare my child any more than I was prepared. I think obviously there are all kinds of conversations parents should be having with their children around sex and relationships and boundaries and their bodies that are so important. And I'm glad we're kind of free to do that today so that children becoming adults can become more prepared in adulthood with these kinds of things. Um, and they can go into them having more knowledge um, than they used to. I don't know whether or not this is really the type of thing women would have thought of at the time, to be honest. It is a bit more of a modern conversation, I think. Um, but I do know we've got accounts of women being overwhelmed by pregnancy or troubles in their marriage and feeling unprepared in the early and mi middle 1800s. So I think it's safe to say that many women did feel overwhelmed and out of their depth um, in marriage. And we're really fortunate today that we can have open and honest conversations with children around these subjects so that when they are adults, they feel prepared and not, not so in the dark and stuck. Yeah. And it is crazy, really, that there was this thing that was a huge huge part of a woman's life and there was basically what um, amounts to like a conspiracy of silence around the whole thing like shh don't tell her she she won't want to do it and then where would she be so anyway yeah it's kind of it's kind of hard to swallow i think mm. so onwards let's not beat around these bushes too much over at the Featheringtons, Portia is complaining to her husband that she's been ridiculed out in society, but he is clearly not willing to do anything about it. Suddenly, their servant announces that the Duchess of Hastings is there. Daphne requires an audience with Marina alone to apologise for judging her. Daphne understands how Marina has gotten into this situation and wishes to help. 
Daphne tells Marina that she's going to help her find George, Marina's lover, and make him step up to the plate and marry her. Daphne seems quite excited about this prospect, and we can see that she's somehow trying to feel better about her own situation by fixing this one. Daphne tells Marina, why should you be left alone to bear the punishment for his crime? In our next scene, we see that Lord Featherington is just as conniving as his wife. Featherington wants to fix the next boxing match and tells Simon's friend Will that the winnings will set him and his family up for life. It is a tempting proposition for a man who has so little, but Will says that his honour is not up for sale. I want to talk a little bit about um, betting scandals. Ooh. So uh, (laughs) I wrote quite a few notes for this. uh, So if we go a little bit longer, I do apologise, but I think it's pretty interesting. So... This kind of um, sports match fixing that uh, Lord Featherington is encouraging Will to be a part of is obviously illegal, but it is also a highly dangerous activity because the people who run the gambling rings are usually the criminals of the area um, at this time period anyway. I think today you'd probably struggle to find an illegal... Well, I would anyway. I I would struggle to find an illegal gambling ring. Anyway, so... I want to talk a little bit about the history of fixing matches like this. But first, with boxing, there's a little bit of interesting history there, forgetting the moment of fixing matches. Because though boxing and all fighting sports were, by all accounts, popular in the ancient world, the Roman Emperor Theodoric the Great banned the practice of sports similar to boxing because of the excessive violence involved at the start of the 5th century. And this ban pretty much stayed in place for 1,200 years, with a boxing uh, finding a revival in the 17th century Britain. No way, I didn't know that. So, I mean, obviously, um, fighting sports, uh, martial arts have been a huge part of human history um, right from the beginning. And whilst people will still have been learning how to hurt each other, and in fact were very much killing each other throughout this entire period, the idea of... Um, beating another man bloody with your fists for sport was banned. So, in the UK or like? No, no. So th- this was this was the Roman Emperor. Um, oh. He originally was the um, Eastern Roman Emperor. Um, yeah, East, East, that side. Um, Constantinople was where he was uh, raised, I believe. Um, he quite interesting didn't really know much about him year 460 something i think he became the the roman emperor um but he eventually became the the ruler of all of the goths uh, like the tribes goths the visigoths the ostrogoths and so became the like roman emperor because he was emperor of everything at that point um so yeah i mean i just think it's interesting that you know in the early centuries this is the fifth century they one of the emperors who conquered a bunch of places went hey (laughs) don't punch each other because it's violent what about like gladiator type stuff um well that's very violent from from what i know in terms of gladiatorial matches and things that was actually earlier in the roman history okay See, I know nothing about that time in history, so I'm not going to even try and speak on that, but... Yeah, I mean, again, this is just off the top of my head, but 
um, by about the fifth century, it's not really Rome anymore. It's not really the Roman Emperor uh, Empire, sorry, because it has split between the East and the West and Roman em uh, empires. So you, you, this is we're starting to get towards the Holy Roman Empire that was basically like Germany, um, that was kind of in the fourteen, fifteen hundreds, right? Like we, we've already the fall of Rome has kind of happened, um, and like I said, I think he was in constantinople which is um istanbul right uh, turkey so yeah it's all complicated but i think the gladiator stuff for rome was a little bit earlier closer to kind of like um zero b bc ad kind of thing cool i just was curious i i think but i, I don't know anyway um so i just thought that was an interesting kind of aside first because um Boxing were, you know, very, very popular now. All fighting sports kind of have been for quite a while. But the first documented account of boxing came in 1681 in the London Protestant Mercury, which I think was a newspaper. At the end of the 17th century, matches were highly popular, with the contestants and viewers allowed to place side bets on the matches. So, bare-knuckle boxing, which is named for the bared fists of the fighters, was and is still a very dangerous sport. With no protection, boxers may actually seriously injure an opponent or themselves, and in fact, the so-called father of English boxing, John Jack Broughton, Broughton, I'm not really sure how to pronounce his surname, introduced safety rules after an opponent of his died after a bout. The Broughton's rules, as they became known, were devised in 1743, and stated that if one contender was knocked down, he had until the count of 30 to get up and the match would be over. He also introduced helmets and a type of gloves known as mufflers. These rules changes uh, were the most important advances in boxing until the introduction of the Queensbury rules in 1867. So in 1750, a savage fighter named Jack Slack, who is the grandson of James Figg, the first boxing champion, champion of the modern era, beat uh, John Broughton to become the champion. He went on, uh, Jack Slack went on to become the first international boxer of the period when he fought a Frenchman named Jean Petit. Uh, during the fight, however, Petit tried to strangle Slack until Slack kicked him in the groin and the fiasco continued and later the Frenchman was chased out of the ring. Slack is mainly remembered for being a dirty fighter as he's credited with inventing the rabbit punch it's a particularly nasty attack which is aimed at the base of the skull on, on the back of the head and it has a serious risk of death and permanent injury from severing the spinal cord or brainstem. Oof. Let me just repeat that. Severing the spinal cord or brainstem. It's uh, very nasty. So Slack also has the prime distinction of being the first known person to fix a prize fight. And so we're getting to the point here in a minute. He sounds a little bit on edge there. I mean, when his uh, um, grand grandfather James Fig was a much more stand-up guy from <laughs> from what I read. Hmm. So apparently, there had been rumours for years that Slack had paid off the better opponents to lose, so that fewer challenges would come for his crown. Um, you know, of being boxing champion. But after losing it anyway to a William Stevens in 1760, which was also possibly a dive, a year later he paid Stevens to take a fall against George Meggs, who was Slack's protege. 
Once the infamous Jack Slack got the ball, ball rolling, boxing became corrupt and, as a result, lost a lot of its popularity. There were many scandals and accusations of diving in the 1760s and the 1770s, notably including William Darts, champion from 1766 to 1771, who was alleged to have taken a dive for £100. And £100 in 1770 is worth £18,358.76 today, which is 25463 and 60 cents. Thank you for that accuracy there. Yeah. (laughs) So after losing the title in the first round to Peter uh, Corcoran and Harry Sellers, uh, champion in 1776-79, who lost a fight after less than a minute, um, prompting furious allegations of a dive there. So, basically, you know, people realized, hey, we can make a lot of money by faking um, these losses, so let's do it. So, the corruption was rife, and it wasn't until the end of the century when a return to respectability um, came in force. By the time that we get to the Regency period, there was a much greater sense of respectability to the sport, uh, sport, sorry. In a lot of ways, this was due to uh, John Jackson, known as the Gentleman. Jackson came from a good background, and though he was an excellent fighter, was champion for just one year in 1795. After three defences, he retired and went on to teach members of the aristocracy the art of boxing. Counted amongst his more affluent students were Lord Byron and Lord Chesterfield. I mean, he had the right idea. That's the way to go, is to like do your time for a little bit and then be like, okay, I am going to be paid by a bunch of rich people just to teach them. And I can also keep my brain cells. So <laughs> exactly, exactly. So before we kind of move on to the little, the little next thing, um, I just kind of want to talk again about the bare knuckle thing because, you know, people might not quite realize, but you know, in Sherlock Holmes, the one with them, um, Robert Downey Jr. Mm. Um, he does bare knuckle boxing and stuff um, in the ring in those that the Victorian type of ring, and that's that's kind of what we're talking about here. the The discussion kind of doesn't just come with the fighting sports, though. Um, American football, I know, has a lot of this kind of discussion going on in terms of the players' uh, head injuries and the concussions that they receive. Um, the the sport uh, rugby, which is in some ways comparable to American football, doesn't use the same kind of pads that American football does and doesn't have nearly the same type of injuries. Because when when you wear padding in boxing or in American football or any other kind of thing, you hit harder because you know that you're not going to be hurt. Whereas if if you're if you've got no padding on and you punch someone in the face, it hurts a lot. I'm not sure if you've ever punched anything that's harder than a pillow or a punching bag um but if you if you punch someone wrong it hurts a lot and you can break bones very very easily so the reason that bare knuckle boxing is is so dangerous though is because it's it's bone on bone and it's hard contact um but you know on the flip side the pads and things can also be dangerous because you can hit harder and not really care so much about about the damage that you're taking so whilst all of that may be interesting, um, and I think so anyway, it is... Thank you. What? No, it is interesting. It is. Mm, mm, the sarcastic <laughs> face tells me a no, lot. No, it is interesting. Um, it's not normally something I'm interested in, but I think it is interesting. And I think, you know, we don't necessarily always see boxing in these kinds of 
period dramas. I know in like Becoming Jane, one of the focal points is um, her love interest boxes and shouldn't be boxing and that sort of thing. So it is interesting to kind of know the background of it and how popular it was. And then, you know, some of these backdoor deals. Yeah. I mean, I had no idea that it it was like a fairly recent um, sport in in the grand scheme of things. And because obviously wrestling has a kind of a more storied history going back to Greek um, wrestling and, and whatnot. Anywho, so... Like I said, whilst all of that may be interesting and it, it can be a little bit hard to kind of grasp properly. So a more modern example of fixing sports um, and there's something a little bit more American to boot was the Black Sox scandal of 1919, which was a major league baseball scandal involving eight players of the Chicago White Sox. So the White Sox were accused of fixing the 1919 World Series. And quick side note here, how is it the World Series when it's literally only the U.S.? Anyway. Are you asking me this? Uh, no. I, I'm, I'm throwing it out there for all of the Americans to kind of <laughs> ponder the kind of uh, self Anybody want to come for Jordan? Nature. <laughs> comment on the Facebook group. Yeah, please. Um, no, but so um, they were accused of fixing the 1919 World Series, uh, throwing the games against the Cincinnati Reds in exchange for money from a gambling syndicate led by Arnold Rothstein, a kingpin of the Jewish mob in NYC. So this was absolutely huge at the time, and eventually led to the permanent banning of eight uh, Sox players, including refusal of admittance to the Baseball Hall of Fame. So the players involved in the scandal, um, and I'm not going to name them all because it's just names, um, received $5,000 each or more, which was equivalent to $74,000 in 2019 with the conspiracy leader uh, Gandal taking $35,000 at the time, which is equivalent to $516,000 uh, in 2019. It started because the players were unhappy with the wages that they were receiving from the team owner Charles uh, Kamiski, despite the Sox ironically having the largest team payroll in 1919. I was just about to say, like, nowadays, they're paid, like, Buku's amount of money, so, like, why would you... Why, like... $35,000 nowadays, even even $500,000, the, the equivalent of what it was, wouldn't even touch what they're paying these these guys nowadays. Yeah. So it's like, why would you even risk any of that? But I guess, you know, if, you, if you're paying, being paid so little during this time period, then, then maybe your eye shifts a bit and you're like, hmm. Okay, yeah, exactly. Not that it's right, but like, you know, guys wouldn't even be tempted today, whereas maybe back then it was like, I need to put food on the table, so... Uh, yeah, I'm not sure if it was quite that bad. Um, however, so a lot of the information I've read about this kind of talks about Comiskey's uh, behavior. Uh, apparently, he was a bit of a, a, a quote, jerk, which I thought was a funny <laughs> a funny uh, name to call him, um, to the players and other people, um, despite having been a player himself in the past, and uh, apparently was very stingy. That was the impression that the people had of him, despite the fact, like I said, that apparently the White Sox had the largest team payroll in 1919 anyway, so... If the, the highest paid members of uh, Major League Baseball had this complaint, I'm sure the rest of them did as well. However, due to a reserve clause in all of the players' contracts in Major League Baseball, they were unable to leave a team and sign with anyone else. Um, so, you know, if if the players, like, like I said, they, they were unhappy, but 
if they wanted to leave, they couldn't because they had nowhere else to go. They would be basically banning themselves from baseball. And they, at the time, had no union to give them any bargaining power either. So they couldn't actually um, ask for better contracts because they, they had no one in their corner um, and things like that. An interesting thing about Comiskey is apparently when he was a player, he was actually involved in a player strike and then became a team owner and caused his players to consider doing the same, but they, they couldn't. So, sorry, it may not have been a player strike. It was a union strike of some kind. So the perceived lack of fairness in the wages led the players to wanting more money, um, which made them susceptible to the match fixing. So without going into literally all of the details, which you can read more of online if you would like to, this scandal took years to finally sort out. The players weren't banned until 1921, and it caused the way the sport was governed to be changed. So, in fact, it led to the appointment of a commissioner of baseball, a federal judge whose responsibility it was to sort out the corruption and issues plaguing the game. I, When I read this, I was kind of gobsmacked that there was a, a literal federal judge who was hired to be the commissioner of baseball. Yeah. Like, it's just how big America's favorite pastime is, or was, at least, Yeah, at the time. Yeah. I think... I think certainly, you know, nowadays when we talk about sports and we see how much money people make in sports, I mean, people make above and beyond oh, yeah. the amount that, you know, I, I think people back then would ever even perceive you could make in sports. And so, you know, when we're talking about Bridgerton, somebody like Will, he is someone who is trying to put food on the table. You know, he's he's not in the position that the Duke is, where the Duke you know, he's going to have this money till he dies one way or the other. And he just can kind of flip back and forth between London and Cliveden and yada, yada. Will has got to work for his money and, you know, him providing for his family means that his eye could be turned by, by fixing a match. Unfortunately, oh, yeah. we, yeah, yeah. we see, you know, in this, this time period when sports are just really starting to come about and boxing and things like like baseball are just kind of new in society organized yeah sports organized sports yeah right. that these these um players and fighters and stuff they they didn't kind of have the protections that they no. do today yeah. and so it it clearly was easy for them to kind of do these backdoor dealings in order to to gain some sort of security for themselves well you know easy easy for them to consider it but you know mm. like like we're saying it's kind of it's not easy to pull off because today incredibly um illegal and also incredibly difficult like it wouldn't even be worth doing it no. today um but at the time <laughs> it gets you in deep water with the kinds of bad men that are likely to chop off a few fingers or bash in a few kneecaps if you can't pay them back um so like if you don't if you don't do it right and let's be fair it's gambling mm -hmm. so there's a lot of chances that you're going to do it wrong that you know things can go wrong so easily like, oh, you end up with like peaky blinders type people because like that's what i'm saying yeah yeah yeah, yeah. 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 peaky <laughs> blinders is a prime example of yeah. this because it, that was one, horse racing right they're like uh, the peaky blinders yes. are in horse racing yeah 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 because well not only was it horse racing it was horse breeding it was like the whole yeah it, yeah it was the whole organization but like that's what I'm saying. The Peaky Blinders literally ran the the gambling because it's racketeering, right? Right. And, right. The, and the mob, like I mentioned earlier, the um, the mob in New York City, um, they they ran like racketeering and stuff for for many many years. 
and and the whole point of it is for the mob for the mafia for whoever it is whatever gang it is to make money and they do that by ripping off people and you know by getting fighters to take dives by getting sportsmen to to one of the, one of the players literally <laughs> the the reason that they caught onto it is because the um it's not a bowler it's not cricket what pitcher pitcher right yeah, good job. so the the pitcher um he the first um throw throw pitch pitch there we go the first pitch he threw um was a strike then the second one he threw it at the batsman's back like he just straight threw it at the back and then the the third one um intentionally threw it at the ground or something oh no no the third thing he did um was he threw a bad pass to um the baseman is it a baseman i don't know i'm sorry i don't know baseball i don't even know cricket so i don't know why i accidentally use a cricket term so anyway the the whole point is the the way that they had to throw the match or matches was suspicious enough that um a reporter and an ex-player were able to compare notes on the plays and go well that was suspicious to me and they went yeah it is and so they caught them like it's so easy if you're if you're literally the best team because at the time they were the best team in in the country to then suddenly start losing in in such an obvious way it just anyway it's yeah it's illegal and it's and it's not worth it um but it is like thank you for for bringing that up because it is interesting to see kind of the difference between the way you know people in sports nowadays especially in the u.s are treated almost like gods you know they're right. they're treated like these huge huge celebrities which they are um but back in the day like you know you could see where your head could get turned um but then there was all sorts of kind of scary repercussions if you decided to go down that road and we're going to see what happens to Will because of some of the choices that he makes. So it's like... Yeah, and there's lots of stories that kind of talk about this um, and, and things like that. So, yeah, it's it's kind of crazy. But let's get back to Bridgerton. So we're at Lady Danbury's party with a huge bunch of ladies playing cards and drinking. Trope turned on its head because it's normally the men we see doing this. The women are having a grand old time gambling together and smoking and drinking while the men are just sitting around quietly talking at their own event. Fun. (laughs) (laughs) Daphne meets Kitty Langham, who is the wife of a general in the army which George, Marina's guy, is posted to. Kitty tells Daphne that she rarely speaks to her husband, but that perhaps he will answer her back. It seems as if the women at Daphne's table all have given up on their marriages, choosing instead to live apart from their husbands. They joke that Daphne is still in her honeymoon phase, so that is why she still enjoys the Duke's company. (laughs) Over at the men's club, things are getting heated between Simon and Anthony. The two are hurling insults at each other and how they choose to lead their lives. They also argue about Daphne, but everything is so vague, so none of it really makes sense, to be honest. The verbal fight eventually breaks into a physical one, as the two break a table, getting glass everywhere. Simon comes home with a bloodied face, which offers an opportunity for Daphne to try and fix it. Ooh la la. Simon finally tells Daphne what happened with his father, and how he made a vow to never have a child, to spite his father, who was obsessed with his lineage and nothing more. Daphne thinks this is silly. 
She thought that Simon just couldn't have children, not that he was forcing himself not to have them because of his dead father. Before leaving the room, she realizes that the hatred for his father outweighs the love he has for her, which is clearly going to be a problem in their relationship. I mean, there'd be a problem in anybody's relationship. I mean, <laughs> oh my goodness. So we're not gambling people, but it is interesting to see these scenes switched, and it feels kind of cool that the women are somehow the ones getting something done when they hang out you know like we talk about men kind of talking in these in these kind of gambling situations or kind of you know locker room is now like, synonymous like doing deals kind yeah, of yeah, yeah, yeah 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 doing deals and those those sorts of things and it feels kind of cool that that somehow the women are, are doing this in a scene like this like Daphne's trying to get information out of this general's wife and so this is normally something we'd see in a scene with, with men, for instance, like, oh, like, I know him, I'll get a letter to him, and, and we're, we're going to fix all this type thing. But it's the women doing this, and Daphne's trying to change Marina's fate through her connections, and it's just cool to see as opposed to the opposite, where it's always men controlling things behind closed doors. It's really cool to see, like, these women are trying hard to be like, look, he's done this to you, he's knocked you up he can pay for it type thing. He can sort this situation out and step up and be a, be a man. And my connections are going to help that for you. And I think that's that's kind of cool. As for Daphne and Simon's situation, this is the classic thing of like allowing people to take over your joy. So his father is dead. He's got this beautiful, amazing life and a wife who loves him and his whole future of ahead of him. And yet, from beyond the grave, he is allowing his father to steal his joy and affect his life. I think Daphne is right in this situation, and I think that Simon is allowing his hatred for his father to overrule any of the happiness that he could have in his life today, which is kind of ridiculous to let somebody kind of control you from beyond the grave. So one of my favorite movies is a Tyler Perry movie called Diary of a Mad Black Woman. And like a lot of his films, they're zany and raunchy, um, and kind of all over the place. Um, but they've got these great pearls of wisdom in them and like life lessons that are great to learn from. And in Diary of a Mad Black Woman, there's this scene where the late, great Cicely Tyson, who just passed away recently, she was a phenomenal actress. She says in the scene, when somebody hurts you, they take power over you. If you don't forgive them, then they keep the power. Forgive him and after you forgive him, forgive yourself. And so I think that people have different opinions on how to deal with forgiveness and when to forgive and that sort of thing. But I think this line was just so powerful. Like, forgive someone, not for them, but for you. Let go, not for them, but for you. Let go of the anger and the resentment for yourself and not for them. And I do believe that's exactly what Simon needs to do. He needs to let go of wanting to spite his father, not for his father, but for himself. So it's important that Simon lives for his life and for himself and not for his father. And that is the true revenge. Like if he and Daphne were to have children and make themselves like happy and grow a family and grow in love and have an actual happy functional marriage, all the things that his father didn't have and he was the father that his father wasn't then that's how he truly wins that's how he truly can spite his father by being a better person and having a life his father never had not by spiting his father and never having happiness but by being the husband and father his father never was 
being a better man than his father was and never giving his father a second thought or letting his father take power over him for what happened. I think that's, to me, those sorts of things, like that's the true revenge because otherwise somebody controls you without even still being alive. It's crazy. So I feel like the sad thing is like Simon can't see it yet and he's spending his early days in marriage, which are supposed to be your happiest. He's spending them focused on his hateful father who's dead anyways. It shouldn't matter. So... Definitely hoping that like Simon's gonna learn some lessons from from this because mm-hmm. he could be having a very joyful marriage right now and he's letting his father control him. Yeah, but we've kind of briefly talked about this before that, you know, when these couples they don't know each other very well, like, you know, they've both had realizations that hang on a minute, I've married someone and I don't know this side of them. Yeah. That they 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 will go through these periods at the start of the marriage and in in a lot of sense it's the fairy tale idea of being married and then living happily ever after it's like well no it's like you get married and if you live happily ever after it's because you worked at it and, yeah and you actually every day you you sit down and you go um if we've got an issue let's talk about it or we go you know oh you didn't pick up your socks today or you didn't wash the dishes i'm i'm frustrated but I'm going to let it go. I'm going to love you because we're married. Um, That is not anything from our day-to-day life. I've totally done all of my dishes and picked up all of my socks recently. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) I do Um, love you, though. No, I know, I know. So, yeah, I mean, I I agree wholeheartedly with regards to him letting go, being the better person. And, like, if, if if you hate the things that your parents did, do it differently yeah yeah um (laughs) it's so there's not much more anyway for me to add there um and then the scene with the women gambling and things was definitely a fun trope reverser um i really kind of thought that was funny we don't see it a lot and i think some people might kind of like say well you know it's too different like we don't know that that happened or or whatever it's not ladylike it's not ladylike yeah exactly but i mean really if you think about it if you really think about it that probably happened. I, I mean, yeah, we do have accounts of like women playing games and stuff. And I mean, certainly, you know, back then women could also get drunk at events too. So I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not as sure about the whole smoking thing, but I do, I do think that Why? like smoking was definitely a thing that became in vogue for, for like everybody. So like, I know, I just don't know if, if that was like a huge thing in that particular time period and for like women and so I don't know. Well, I mean, we see the queen taking snuff, snuffs tobacco. Yeah, yeah. I'm just saying like, I, you know, I don't know how accurate something like this is, but I do think, you know, we've talked about this before that we've got this, though. this like view of women that mm-hmm. is, yeah. oh, always ladylike and these women never did anything wrong and always set up straight and yada, yada, yada. And I do think that stuff like this happened where where women were silly and, you know, women like played card games together and got a bit boisterous and were silly at dances and that sort of thing. And so um, I think a a scene like this in in any case, just having a scene like this that shows that women are somehow behind closed doors trying to pull strings I just think it's cool to see, oh, even if it's well. yeah, like, yeah. even if it's like a bit manipulative. Like, I think well, it's it's cool to see it, manipulative the same way that any anything is manipulative. I mean, it, that's just all fiction. So, um, but I mean, I I was just enjoying that scene for 
the fun of it and for the the fact that like any other time period you can very very happily watch women enjoying themselves having a drink and being silly at a party right think of oh i mean literally every any other time period except for this one normally and so i just think it was really kind of a fun thing to see that because it it probably happened you know yeah. so so anyway over at the bridgertons Eloise is getting ready for a concert which she's decided to go to in order to uncover Lady Whistledown. She's trying hard to find out who it is so that she can restore the Featherington's name, which is sweet of her for Penelope's sake. Violet is helping her get ready, and she says, If you're not ready to be out in society, I will not ask you to play pretend, which is really great of the mother. It seems as if she doesn't want to rush her daughter, and is perhaps thinking about how Daphne's feeling, and that little talk that they had. Standing side by side, the casting was pretty good on this one, because they truly do look like mother and daughter, and the resemblance there is really good. At the concert, Eloise goes to the Queen and tells her of a new theory that she's developed about Lady Whistledown. The Queen, however, is not impressed, and tells her that she no longer requires her services. Eloise is then about to sit through a four-hour concert, until she sees that her brother Benedict has decided to leave, and the two look absolutely elated at being able to leave the event early, which is honestly quite relatable. They pick up Madden Delacroix, who is Benedict's new uh, friend, and Eloise forms a new opinion that Delacroix may be Lady Whistledown. At the Featheringtons, Marina tries to take matters into her own hands by making some sort of concoction, which is so dangerous and very hard to watch. It renders her unconscious. At the same time, Daphne finds out that she is indeed not pregnant whilst at the concert, and her mother rushes into the ladies' room um, to find her crying. The Duke, sitting in their box outside of the uh, the room, uh, I guess it's an ensuite, <laughs> sits stoically and silently, not coming to his wife's aid. The scene goes to black. Maybe, maybe the implication was that she was a lot further away. I think so, yeah. Um, but you know, it kind of the way it was cut, I believe, yeah, makes it look like they're right next yeah. to each other. But never mind. So, yeah, that's the end of the episode. Fade to black. Definitely was not my favorite episode. This is like an episode to really show how this perfect world that we've seen is crumbling around all of these people. <laughs> Yeah. Everyone has problems and drama, and it's all becoming a mess. No one seems to be happy, except for maybe Benedict, <laughs> who it seems has embraced the freedoms of being a second in line. Everyone is clearly at the brink here, and we're going into the next episode with a bit of despair. In our two main storylines, Daphne has now lost any connection that she might have had, had with her husband, and Marina's situation is the worst it's ever been. I have never looked forward to a happy, colorful ball than I do now. Bring back the balls. <laughs> Bring back the balls, <laughs> indeed. Um, so this is the darkest moment. It's the trials, the tribulations. Um, um, it's the the descent into the cave. It, we have to wonder whether our heroine will emerge victorious. It's definitely a great penultimate, penultimate episode for that, you know, in terms of uh, structure. Yeah, for sure. So we've got some fun stuff coming up on the podcast. I know we're almost through with Bridgerton, but that is not the end of Regency Rumors. We're going to be recapping some more Regency shows and other period dramas. So please do stick around with us uh, and tell your friends about us. 
so it looks like we're probably going to be recapping Sanditon next. I I wasn't wanting to say that that's what we were going to do next because I was really hoping in these last few weeks that we would finally get some sort of a notification that Sanderson season two was going ahead. And while it seems like behind closed doors that it is, they're just not giving an official go ahead yet. It seems like a lot of the paperwork is going through and, you know, they're working on stuff for it to happen. I was really hoping that essentially we would recap this as because Jordan's never seen it before. I have, but Jordan hasn't seen it. Obviously. <laughs> What's the whole premise of this podcast? <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I think that <laughs> it would, would have been a really fun thing to kind of recap the the first season of Sanditon and then hopefully the second one would come out and it, it you know, our podcast would kind of be a refresher for people. But it, it seems like that we're just not sure when Sanditon's going to start back up, uh, if or when type thing. But we we do think that that'll be the one that we'll recap regardless. Um, there is a poll right now that I've put up for um, people who are listeners of the podcast in the Facebook group. So if you would like to... Will that poll still be active by the time this episode goes live? Yes, because I have to edit this and then it will be up. Sure. I'm just asking. Yeah. So um, go check it out. Yeah. Go check it out on the Facebook group because there's a couple other shows that I've put down there that we could also recap besides Sanditon. It's looking like people are more interested in Sanditon than anything else. But I haven't checked the that, results lately. Yeah. That. That being said, we are interested in recapping some other shows, and we could do that, but we're busy, and so if that's the case that people would be interested in us recapping other things, that's something that we'd have to explore on Patreon um, as kind of um, some extra stuff to do during the week. So if you are interested in us recapping other shows, let us know on the Facebook group because we'd be interested in it, um, but we are still a new podcast and um, we are a small podcast. So something like that would have to kind of be explored on, on Patreon. So I'm also interested um, if any of the listeners are in exploring some novels. Um, yeah. We have mentioned this previously. Yeah. Um, separate a little bit from the kind of the book club idea, but um, there are some Regency fantasy crossovers that I'm interested in reading and exploring, and maybe, I don't know, maybe that doesn't have to be a podcast, maybe it could be a series of um, like blog posts or something, Yeah. Um, if we don't necessarily have the interest in people listening to, to those, um, or reading the books, maybe you don't have time. Um, I know that like an episode of, of a TV show can be much, much quicker for people um, than reading a book from from scratch um so but yeah please do tell us it's it's always interesting to to see what people have to say and, and we love it when people reach out um so i i did actually i i purchased one of these books that i mentioned quite a while ago for kayla Here she we hasn't even attempted to open and go. read it yet which i think is quite rude so i'm probably going to read it first <laughs> I have been planning, I promise you, I've been planning to read that book. I just, I've had all the Bridgerton books to read. I've had 10 You didn't Bridgerton have to read those. To- you didn't have to read those. <laughs> you read them all in two days time. Like, don't, don't try and lie. <laughs> don't try and lie. You read, you stayed up until 5am every day just to read them. And I'd wake up in the morning and you'd be there bleary really eyed looking at me like Gollum and being like, eh, I need to read the next one. <laughs> I'm like, well, you know, you could get some sleep first. No. 
I am going to read the book that you that you gave me. You've given me two fantasy Regency books at this point that yeah. I need to read. Yeah, and, yeah. That, and, you know, like I was saying about the book club idea, you know, we're we're pretty busy, to be honest with you. But that's something that we'd we'd love to explore in maybe Patreon is doing a book club yes. and um, being able to kind of read some of these different genres of Regency books. So if you're interested you know, leave us leave us a comment. Um, message us, email email me at a regency girl at gmail dot com, and we'd happily be looking to explore those avenues. We just want to see if our listeners are interested. So, so keep your ears and eyes open. Um, we're also planning some guest speakers. Official, yes. That know much more about this period uh, than we do. So you can hear some episodes where we're not like, well, I don't know. I'm not going to speak on that. I don't know anything about that. We will have someone <laughs> that will speak on it because they know what they're talking about. That'll be great. You know, <laughs> I believe at least one, probably more of, of these planned guests have written literal books about it. So, you know, and also <laughs> I do want to mention, I forgot to mention it earlier, Um I do have sources for the information uh, that I read about today, um, one of which was a um, an independent site and one of them <laughs> was Wikipedia. But, you know, Woohoo! Wikipedia has its own sources there um, and we're not going to get into this discussion now because we've already been talking for an hour and a half. So, um, yeah, that's, that's about it, I think. I'm going to go make some uh, some muffins for, for dessert. Because that's when you that's when you eat muffins. I can't wait to eat our dessert muffins. I wonder if they're going to taste any differently after dinner. Don't give me none of that. You know that they're going to taste better after something savoury. You earn your dessert by eating the main course. Everybody knows this. And I, I often think, like, here's like random fact about Jordan of the week slash uh. whatever. I often think that the main course is better than the dessert anyway, just because, I don't know, I just I kind of like it. But I've talked enough. Thank you, dear listener, for listening to this episode of Regency Rumors. And until next time. Goodbye. Goodbye. Why did we switch? Normally I'm the one doing the normal Because goodbye. you were talking about what you want to eat and nobody cares. <laughs>